Well, I probably don't know the details of your life as you come today to gather together with God's people, sing praises to his name, turn your heart toward him again, independent prayer, to listen to the teaching of God's word. I don't know the details, but your heavenly father does. He knows the situations you're facing. He knows the sins you might be committing. He knows the desires of your heart. Let's look to him now again in prayer to ask him to conform our hearts and our minds, our words and our deeds his will and his character. Let's pray. Father God, we, we do adore you because you're worthy. As we gather together in your name with your people, we're reminded just how blessed we are that you have chosen us and made us your own through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray for each one here to be sure that their heart and life is truly submissive to Jesus as Lord. We pray, too, that we will submit to the teaching of your word. God, give us conviction and clarity, even a little bit of creativity to know how we should apply your truth to the situations of our lives. Thank you that we aim to be more like you, not in order to try to perform so that you will receive us, but because you have already received us, we desire to be children who reflect our Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. As you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, the word for the day is sincerity. Sincerity means freedom from hypocrisy. Sincerity means purity of motive. And the question I want to ask as we begin leading toward our text is, how does our sincerity in service to the Lord impact, first of all, our relationship to God? How does sincerity impact our relationship to God? And how does our sincerity and service to the Lord impact the people around us? The way you handle yourself when you're out in public and the way you think in private are a leaven that pervades every part of your life and a leaven that spreads to the people around you. If we entertain lofty thoughts of God, we shall become like him. But if we wallow in base thoughts from our sinful nature, we will be controlled by those. Our text for today, Acts chapter 4, as Acts 4 transitions into chapter 5, this text focuses on the importance of spiritual sincerity in the Christian community, in life of service to God together. What we see here is 
sincere generosity unifying the believers in mutual care and common mission, which we've been speaking about the last times together. But now, compared to the impurity of hypocrisy, threatening to tear it all down, and it is met with swift and serious discipline from the Lord. Let's back up to Acts chapter 4, verse 34, and continue reading there. Acts 4, 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke, the author of Acts, gives Barnabas as a model for such generosity among the believers that were contributing, that were functioning together, contributing to the mutual care and the unity of mission of making Jesus known. Barnabas is a great example here and important to Luke. But then what follows is another example that mars the unity and spirit of generosity among the believers. The problem is one of deceit and hypocrisy. So let's read two chapter, also chapter five, verses one through 11. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And even after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Maybe she had been shopping. Verse 8, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. We'll look first into the details of the positive example of Barnabas's generosity, and then, of course, we'll do the necessary work of applying that, extending the model to our own lives. Then after that, we'll tackle the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira's deceit, apply that warning about duplicity, and then also kind of apply the need for discipline in the church. So first of all, what about this 
really positive example that Luke has of Barnabas's generosity. He wasn't the only one, but Luke chooses to mention him by name. And if you're familiar with Acts, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you're not surprised by that. As an example of the kind of voluntary generosity and mutual care described in verses 32 to 35, another of the heroes of Acts is now mentioned by name, which comes up another 22 times in the book. Probably because his given name, Joseph, was such a common one, the apostles called him another name. They called him Barnabas. Interestingly, Luke even tells us why they called him Barnabas, because the name means son of encouragement or son of comfort. The word paraklesis, encouragement, carries the idea of being called to someone's side to aid them. The noun form, parakletos, means to be a helper, a counselor, an encourager, a mediator. It's a fitting description for Barnabas' behavior and his service to the church. And it's an apt description in this context because of his submission to the work of the Holy Spirit. The focus in this whole section of Acts is that the Holy Spirit has come upon the believers and they are being filled with the Spirit as they depend on God. And it's apt in this context. And the Holy Spirit is himself called in the New Testament the divine parakletos. In John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit is the divine comforter, the helper, the encourager who indwells the followers of Jesus. Here, Barnabas models sacrificial generosity that indeed encourages the church. Later, Barnabas is the one who introduces a recently converted Paul to the apostles, Paul being his Greek name, when most people are still suspicious of him, and rightly so because when he was known by his Hebrew name, Saul, he was zealously persecuting the Christians. We'll see that in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. It's Barnabas who later then brings Paul in to participate in outreach to the Gentiles. Barnabas brings Paul. And it's Barnabas who travels alongside Paul on his first missionary journey as his companion. And they start their journey in no other place than Cyprus, which is Barnabas' home. And of course, then it's Barnabas who isn't ready to give up on John Mark because of his previous failure. And Barnabas ends up taking a different, a separate ministry path from Paul who doesn't want to bring along John Mark. We'll see that in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 39. Now we learn here too, as I mentioned, that Barnabas was a native of the island of Cyprus. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean. It's, it's the one furthest to the east. So over here in the eastern wing of the Mediterranean Sea, you'll see the island of Cyprus. It's actually just a little bit to the west of Syria. And that's where the, remember the missionary journeys of Paul are, are launched from Antioch of Syria. So it's just north of Judea and Samaria there. 
Cyprus being the closest island to that region. Another unique thing that we learn about Barnabas' situation is that he's a Levite and a landowner, a Levite and a landowner. If you're familiar with uh, Old Testament law, that actually should, should surprise you. The Levites didn't own any land because they were the tribe to serve before the Lord as priests and in service to the worship of God at the temple. They didn't have any property. The Lord God himself said that he would be their possession. But these Levites policed the area, watched over the gates of the temple. They instructed in the scriptures and they copied the scriptures. But it appears that by this time, the law about Levites not owning land either wasn't in force or they weren't really following it. Some of the Sadducees were, in fact, getting rich. The land which Barnabas sold could have been in Cyprus or in Judea. We don't really know for sure. The point, though, is that this was one particular example among the Christian community of someone who was a well-educated man who came from a wealthy family who chose to sell something of great value and donated the proceeds to the common good. As we said last week, this kind of giving promoted the ongoing spread of the gospel, and it was particularly helpful in meeting the needs of those among them who had less. Now, how can we apply the generous example of Barnabas? To take from the word that we started with, we must be those who are marked by giving sincerely. Jesus told his disciples, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We already studied in Luke in the past, I'll be honest, few years. Uh, we, we went through Luke before we came to Acts, and in Luke chapter 12, there in, in the context, Jesus is teaching a, about a rich fool, and he says in verse 15 of Luke 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he gives the story of a rich fool who, who thought that he had everything that he needed and he says to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then Jesus continues, and he tells them, his disciples, not to be anxious for their provision because he has so richly provided for even the, the grass and the birds, will he not provide for his dearly loved people who are not only made in his image, but then chosen by him to be a people for his own possession? In verse 31, he says, but instead of worrying, seek first his kingdom and these things will be added to you. In verse 33, as an example of seeking the kingdom first, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The point is, 
the things that you treasure reveal the concern of your heart. Remember, too, the sacrificial giving of the poor widow then in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. I want to ask you a question about this example. Is it really the case that the Lord cares more about your heart than about the amount that you give? Yes, he cares more about the generosity and the joy of your heart than he does about the amount. After all, does God need any particular amount from you? Is God short on wealth? So you give generously because he has provided for you. But clearly, the amounts will differ based on the amount of God's general provision for us. One recommendation I have heard it said is that we should give in such a way that we feel it. Give in such a way that you know that it has impacted your budget. You make adjustments in order to give. Besides, though, just giving um, our, normal, or our normal tithe, our normal um, regular generosity, there are other ways to give. Can we not also give generously of our time and our energy? And don't people sometimes appreciate that the most, the time and the energy given to them? Nobody's ever going to reach the age of 60 or 80 and say, man, I sure wish I had spent more hours at the office. No, we'll be saying, I wish I had invested more time in the people God has given around me. More energy. Another application here is that when we give grudgingly or merely out of obligation and not joyfully out of a grateful and generous heart, we're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. Paul tells the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So finally, even connected to that verse 8, 
and to the context that we're looking at, we also, here's another application, we grow spiritually together in community when we set an example for one another in manifestations of the work of the Holy Spirit. And giving generously is one of those. We set an example for each other in community when we let the Holy Spirit work through us. When we, if you're a person who is, uh, your primary gifting is to come alongside and help. If your primary gifting is to be the merciful person who just never gives up when others of us tend to be fed up. When your spiritual gifting is to, to, to give generously, to speak the word of God's truth into the lives of other people. When you let the Holy Spirit work through you, we are all grown and encouraged and challenged together. We grow in unity and in strength to be more like Jesus. Now, in sharp contrast to Barnabas stands the deceit of Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. This is the negative example of hypocrisy. I have two questions for us about this section of text. What's the actual problem with the way that Ananias and Sapphira give? What's the actual problem? And what do we make of the discipline that they receive? First, what seems to be the issue that unfolds here? What's the actual issue? Because they too sell land and they donate some of the proceeds to the common purse that is for the, it's for the support of those among them who have need. If that was all we knew, we would have just another positive example right alongside Joseph called Barnabas. But we find out more. Take verses two and three together and that helps us to understand that with his wife's knowledge as well, Ananias gave only a part of the proceeds from the sale. And it appears that even this would have by itself been completely fine, according to verse 4, if they had been honest about it. But instead, they had either promised the whole thing, or they had at least pretended that they were donating the entirety of the proceeds. Can you picture how this would happen to us? Everybody's, or, or many people in the church are giving generously, some of them selling properties and doing great things, and, and it looks really good, and it sounds really good, and look at the generosity of Barnabas, and people are praising it, and Ananias and Sapphira hatch this great idea. They're going to sell their property for $60,000. It goes for seventy, and they just go ahead and communicate that it was only sixty. They wanted to look good, sound good. They got caught up in it. Maybe even worse, they just wanted to look good. And it wasn't even like just, you know, dishonesty sort of happened partway through. But that's usually the way it is with us, isn't it? We don't go into it planning to be hypocritical and deceitful. The problem isn't the amount of the gift, nor even the giving of only part of the proceeds. The problem is the deceit and hypocrisy of desiring to appear more generous than they were. It's insincere, it's dishonest, and it's self-exalting.
The seriousness of this hypocrisy is demonstrated in Peter's words to Ananias about not lying to men, but to God, verse 4. And he says in verse 3, he calls it lying to the Holy Spirit. Side note, see, this is a good example to support the personhood and the deity of the Holy Spirit in the triune Godhead. Verse 3, the Holy, lying to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, lying to God. Peter dramatically emphasizes the seriousness of this deceit by explaining that Satan is the source of such deceitfulness. After all, is he not a liar and the father of lies? John 8, 44. Our sinful desires arise, yes, from a sin nature in us, which we are born with because of Adam's original sin, but it also is the case that all such fleshly desires are following in the footsteps and following in the leadership and following in the wicked devices of the chief adversary, Satan. One thing more shows the seriousness of this hypocrisy. (laughs) What's that? They both get dead. God took it very seriously. First, Ananias drops dead at Peter's feet. And then Sapphira doubles down on the deceit that, quote, tests the spirit of the Lord. And she too breathes her last and is buried beside her husband. Let me ask you, is the discipline too harsh? There are at least two reasons that we must not view this discipline as being too severe. First, it seems quite evident that it's God who punishes them by taking them from this life. Peter isn't the one who causes Ananias' death in verse 5. Peter may have been surprised, been just as surprised as anyone else at first. But then when Sapphira is given a chance to come clean and tell the truth, not knowing what had happened to her husband, she doubles down on the lie So now Peter is able to predict the same outcome for her just three hours ago. Peter doesn't cause it, though. God is responsible for this swift and serious discipline. So if you think this is too severe and too harsh, are you going to shake your fist at God and tell him what he should and should not do? What's the lesson that Job learned about that? Job was... Compared to all other people, Job was a really righteous guy. And yet God said to Job, who are you? Where were you? Job, who am I? It seems that God is setting an example of the seriousness of hypocrisy, as he did when He chose to be severe in Joshua chapter 7. Do you guys recall this episode? It was an episode in the life of Israel shortly after they were going in to conquer the land of Canaan. And this happened right after Jericho. And they go to defeat this city of Ai. And they were commanded that of all all the loot, all the stuff after they defeated a city, they were to keep it all, every bit of it, and devote it to the Lord. But someone named Achan decided to keep some for himself. And because of Achan's sin, a whole bunch of Israelite soldiers died. And then Achan himself was punished by being put to death because God wanted to set an example of the seriousness 
of disobeying him. If God killed all of us for dishonesty, our churches would be empty. So we're thankful for his patience and mercy. He doesn't set an example with all of us. But it remains in the prerogative of God to discipline as harshly as he deems, especially in an effort to protect the purity of his church. Just so, the second reason we must not accuse God of being too harsh here is that this swift and severe consequence has a positive purifying effect on the church. Both verse 5 and verse 11 say that great fear came upon all who heard what happened. Don't waste your time trying to argue that this could be an unhealthy fear. There is undoubtedly such a thing as people experiencing a fear that cripples them, but that's not the way the Bible uses it in reference to people's reverence and awe for God. This fear of God is foundational. This fear of God is captivating, and this fear of God is motivating. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction or discipline. So on that note, let's continue with applying the principle here that we ought to guard against duplicity. I have a couple of implications that are more personal and then one that is corporate. Number one, hypocrisy is really serious. Tinkering with God is a dangerous game. Some of you in your youth have thought to yourselves, I'll repent and try to be right with God later. That's not a good idea. Tinkering with God is a dangerous game. We can, because hypocrisy is serious, we can guard against duplicity by fearing God first. Remember we read from Luke chapter 12, verse 31, seek first God's kingdom and let him take care of provision. Secondly, we're all susceptible to hypocrisy to duplicity, to dishonesty, to being insincere. In the context that we've been looking at, we really should admit that we don't know whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were true believers. You could probably find a couple of details in the text to support either view, that they were true believers or that maybe they were lost. But since that isn't clear or emphasized... I think perhaps they, they were believers, and I think the reason that God removed them was to preserve the purity of the church and to set an example. But since it isn't clear or emphasized, I think we must take that as God's providence and realize the warning here is both for those in the church, true believers, as well as for those who are onlookers. After all, verse 11 says, fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And here in verse 11 is the first mention of the word ecclesia, assembly, a gathering of people as a reference to the corporate body of believers, which will be used again in Acts another 22 times. 
By the way, extra credit if you can remember the other word we said this morning that also came up exactly 23 times in Acts. Barnabas. <laughs> Barnabas and church, ecclesia. We're all susceptible to this hypocrisy. So we can guard against duplicity by assuming a fleshly tendency to be focused on what people think of us rather than what God thinks. Do we not do this? Focus on what people think of us instead of what God thinks? That's how Ananias and Sapphira get caught up in this, undoubtedly. What else? We can guard against duplicity in giving by aiming to keep our giving private. Jesus gave the example in Matthew 6, verse 3 of, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give to the poor. He meant, don't do it for show. Don't do it to receive recognition. Just keep it private. Also, you can guard against duplicity in giving by making much, much of your giving to be consistent. 2 Corinthians 9.5 in the section just before what we read in verses 6, six through 8 about um, being giving joyfully and generously. In that section, Paul is writing to the Corinthians to prepare them to be able to give in advance, for them to plan. I think that you can help guard against having um, pangs of, uh, uh, I wish that I hadn't given all this money. If you just plan in your heart to give generously on a regular basis in most cases, put it in your budget to give back to the Lord, this portion of all that he has provided for you. That can probably be helpful to us as well. Finally, the application here that I promised corporately is that the church must not tolerate hypocrisy and unrepentant sin. We're told not to. You know, the Bible also says that love covers a multitude of sins, but that's in the spirit of not, uh, not taking everything personally. That's in the spirit of we love one another enough to give people grace and space, and it's okay, uh, but I still want them, you know, it's, but it's not so that we don't confront one another. It's not so that we don't challenge one another to grow, no. In fact, we're, we're taught in the New Testament that we must not tolerate hypocrisy and unrepentant sin. That's the principle in Matthew 18. And you can look also at other examples in 1 John chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 5. The goal of such discipline is, is to restore the sinning brother as well as preserving purity and unity in the church. And because the church's unity and effective ministry is at stake, we must guard against hypocrisy and discipline unrepentant sin. Purity in the church won't mean perfection, but it does mean progression in the right direction. So as we conclude, as we wrap things up for today, just remember that motive matters to God. Does it not seem evident or even primary that God cares about why Barnabas gave and God cares about why Ananias gave? And because motive matters to God, 
we should zealously pursue spiritual wealth instead of earthly riches. Which thing is of greater value? A fat bank account? A robust market portfolio? Many possessions? Or the sincerity and integrity of character that longs to love God, longs to love God more and to be more like him? So we zealously pursue spiritual wealth instead of earthly riches and diligently pursue God in order to be godly. Your heart before God matters infinitely more than gaining earthly status, gaining earthly power, acclaim, property, or even positive influence. Relationship to God is primary, and everything else is secondary even positive ministry for the kingdom, which means that integrity or character before God is primary. All else is secondary. Relationship to God is primary. All else is secondary, which means that your integrity, your character before God is primary and everything else is secondary. The sincerity of our generosity is a reflection of whether or not our hearts are treasuring God more than stuff, whether or not our hearts are treasuring the giver more than the gifts he has given. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for the way you richly have provided everything that you made. You made all of these things for your glory. You created human beings in your image so that we would honor you and worship you and reflect you. And God, we know that we have desperately, wickedly marred that image. But we thank you that in your own goodness and perfect plan of your eternal decree, that you have seen fit to resolve that problem yourself with your own goodness and perfection in God the Son, Jesus Christ, becoming a man and living a perfect life, and then paying the penalty for our sin, suffering the justice and the wrath of your righteousness against sin. Thank you that he rose again to offer, offer forgiveness and restoration to you. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to be people who are trying to perform to be right with you, but that because you have made us right with you through faith in Jesus Christ, we long to be like you. In the name of our Lord, we pray. Amen.